0: to get more questions done. All right, so uh, to the gentleman that asked me that question yesterday, yes? You sent me back to do some homework. Yeah, I was caught a little bit off. But with regards to, let's address the question of the cirrhosis and the scarring, what's happening is once you've got that liver changing, uh, any sort of inflammatory changing, any sort of fibrotic changing, right, then you're going to have scarring, yes? Right, so you're going to have scarring. So the scarring is usually what we'll term cirrhosis. And then the initial changes, you talk about mild cirrhotic changes. This is usually reversible. As this progresses and becomes worse, then those changes become irreversible. And you talk about chronic cirrhotic changes. Guys, have me on my toes. All right, so today is jam packed, it's small intestines. So we'll be going through a lot of details. We'll go through the uptake of all the different types of nutrients. So we'll talk about carbs, we'll talk about proteins, we'll talk about lipids, we'll talk about some minerals, we'll talk about some vitamins, both the fat-soluble vitamins and a few of the water-soluble vitamins. And then, of course, we'll toss in some clinical correlates. So this means I'll spare you with a lot of my IMCQs, during the first hour. Right, so uh, a little bit of literature just to get you going on Friday. You've got an American humorist. He's a writer. His quote was, I finally come to the conclusion that a good, reliable set of bowels is worth more to man than any quantity of brains. Now, ironically, what happened... Is that he was quite famous for his literary works. However, when he settled and as he approached middle age, no one knew of his uh, fame. No one knew of his endeavors. And when he died, it was the tongue physician who was the tongue embalmist, who was the tongue pathologist. What they did is that they usually entrailed persons and they would throw the entrails out into the garbage. And so this very famous humorous was actually had his entrails discarded and used for fishing bait. So quite an ironic life we live. All right, so that being said, we'll talk about lots and lots and lots of entrails, the small intestines, and all the wonderful things that are going to happen in it Now, the lecture objectives use your QR codes, you go through step by step, and you'll see each are mapped to the objectives. So, in the light of the hurricane, you're going to see a lot of the post disaster complications, cholera usually being one of them. if you wish All right. So two more seconds. Let's see how you did. Make sure you're clicking it's the first one for the morning. All right. All right. Nice. Right, so at the end of this hour, we should be able to associate what happens when you increase your intracellular cyclic AMP, what happens when we increase our intracellular calcium, and how this can actually cause some diarrhea. Excellent. Right, so with regards to small muscle motility, we're going to look at it in the two phases again. What's happening in your fasting phase and what's happening in your fed phase? Now, in the fasting phase, MMCs. That's all we think about during our fasting states. We think of motiline and we think of that peristaltic activity that's going to happen every 90 minutes or so that is going to clean out the gut. It's going to channel these uh, peristaltic waves from your duodenum all the way to the rectum. Now, during the fed state in the small intestines, you're going to start to see those two classifications we talked about earlier on. So you're going to see your peristaltic waves and you're going to see your segmentation waves. Now peristaltic waves, you'll see different variations in the definitions, but I want you to think of with physio, peristalsis moving that food from proximal to distal. So you're going to have contractions and relaxations of both the longitudinal and circular in different ways, moving that food or that bolus or that chyme from proximally to distally. And then segmentation, as the name suggests, encapsulating that bolus within a particular pocket or sector of that small intestines and allowing the digestive process to occur. So you'll have mixing with the digestive juices, you'll have uh, macera- further uh, uh, maceration or making these particles into micromolecules. Now, what they have done is that they have measured the different types of peristaltic waves that can be seen throughout the length of that small intestine from the duodenum, the beginning of the jejunum, all the way distally. Notice during your fasting phase, you only see little bursts of peristaltic waves or bursts of contractile activity. And this is your MMCs. So it should occur, say, once every hour, once every 90 minutes or so. And so as it's closer to the duodenum or more proximal, the intensity of these MMCs are greater. As you move distally, notice the intensity weakens, or the amplitude of that contraction weakens. Once someone has consumed something to eat, Notice you've got now that consistent contractile motility occurring across the length of the various parts of the small intestines. Likewise, distance proximal to uh, distal, the magnitude or the amplitude of that contractility is going to weaken. Now, in the fed state, you want that motility to happen because you want mixing with the enzymes. You've just learned about the pancreas secreting a whole host of digestive enzymes, and these enzymes become active once it, 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 it interacts with the enterokinase on the brush border. So you want to have a milieu or an environment necessary for these enzymes to act. And so once you start having the motility occurring, You're going to mix that food with the secretions, mix that food with the enzymes, and help to circulate it so that it can make contact with the absorptive surface area. And always, we want to start moving that food from proximal to distal. Now, it's going to take some amount of time. In fact, it can take as much as three days, depending on the meal that you've had So initially, based on what we saw in the amplitude of contractile activity, you have a rapid transit, and so we want to spread that chyme along the intestine. But once we've reached lower down or towards the ileum, towards the jejunum, we want to slow down that transit because we want to do maximal absorption. Now, let's take a look and recall that fluid transport. We've taken in, say, 2 liters within what we've eaten during the day. We've secreted a large amount of saliva, maybe 1.5. We've secreted 2 liters of gastric acid. We've secreted small amounts of bile, small amounts of pancreatic juice. But the intestines is also going to add to those secretions. We're going to have roughly 1 liter of secretions from your small intestine. Now, if we add up this value, we're going to end up with a very large volume. But hopefully, none of us excretes that large volume daily. What happens or what should happen ideally is that the maximum or as much as 90% of that liquid must be taken back up in our small intestines. We should not have more than two liters emptying or pouring into the large intestines, because the capacity for the large intestines is usually, say, 2 to 5 liters. Now, if we've got more than that 2 liters emptying, we're going to make this person prone to diarrhea. And so we'll look at now how all of this absorption is going to occur in the small intestines. Now, stool water, usually approximately 100 mils, Clinically, we say if that person has more than 300 mils in their stool, then this person is presenting with diarrhea. So in the small intestines, you've got lots of absorption of fluid, usually isoosmotic. In the colon, whatever is left back from that two liters, we're going to have absorption of 95% of the fluid, but you're also going to have concentration of that luminal fluid. When we talk about conservation of sodium, we look at the exchange of the different ions. We talk about the colon now secreting potassium ions. And so we alluded to earlier the maximum uh, capacity that that colon can absorb is usually 5 liters. If we're emptying more than 2 liters, greater than 5 liters into that colon, that person is unable to reabsorb that fluid. That fluid will be excreted this person will clinically manifest diarrhea. So just a little summary. Absorption in the small intestines, you have your sodium chloride, potassium. It's going to secrete your bicarb. Versus the large intestines, it's secreting potassium. So we're sparing the potassium or we're reabsorbing the potassium in the small intestines, but we're secreting that potassium back in the colon. So this is from your histo just to remind you of what's special about your small intestines or what will help with that specialized function, which is to increase that surface area maximally. And what helps to increase that surface area is not only the fact that we have villi, but Small finger like projections on these villi are your microvilli. And so we've doubled, almost tripled, up to 200 times increased the surface area to facilitate absorption of these digestive products. And so the first set of key concepts that we looked at we looked at chyme, how that chyme is moved, the fluid back and forth movement or absorption across the small intestine we think of the sources of that fluid, and we looked at the specialized uh, uh, surface area, and so we can appreciate why that absorptive property is necessary. So this is a summary slide, and it reminds us of all the different nutrients that we have that, are, that can be absorbed based on the enzymes that are present. So when we looked at the salivary gland, we looked at the salivary amylase, we looked at the lingual lipase in the stomach, we talked about gastric lipase, and we talked about pepsin. Now, we can do without uh, the, the amylase and lingual lipase from the saliva and the gastric lipase from the stomach. However, what we cannot be deficient of is what is secreted by the pancreas. Once we've got any sort of abnormality affecting those pancreatic juices, then this person is going to present with symptoms of malabsorption. Now on the brush border, you have your enterokinase, and then you've got also a host of other major digestive enzymes being present that are going to continue to act on these uh, products of digestion. And so where are these nutrients primarily absorbed? And hopefully we can link this back to a graph that will come later on in this lecture. You've got iron, carbs, calcium, mainly in the upper part. So you think of duodenum, think of jejunum, Proteins, fat salts throughout the small intestines. And then the distal ileum, your catchphrases should be bile acids, vitamin B12, your cobalamin. Now, the digestion and absorption... If we go back to our function and regulation lecture, we know that it's influenced by what your secretions are and how motile that gut wall is. And so we should appreciate by now what's regulating this secretion, what's regulating the motility. We talk about the influence of our hormones, and then we'll talk about the influence of your ENS and your ENS network. But... Even though we've macerated that chyme, we've broken it up into pieces, absorbing it is not a simple process. There are many barriers to that nutrient absorption. And so even though you've got that micromolecule, you have to create certain things or facilitate that movement across the enterocyte so that it eventually reaches your portal circulation. So when we talk about lipids, We'll talk about how the micelles will facilitate moving across that unstirred water layer. You have to pass that apical membrane, so whether you use a transporter, whether it's active transport, how it will move across the cytoplasm. Then you have to pass across the basolateral membrane, navigate through the interstitial space, and then get into your capillaries. So, in terms of the carbohydrates, Majority of our meal usually consists of carbs. Whether we have potato, whether we have bread, whether we have rice, the list goes on. It's endless. And most of our diets consist of our polysaccharides or our large structured carbs. We've got oligosaccharides and we've got monosaccharides. But classically, what we like to see is these polymers, are they digestible or are they non-digestible? And research is now uh, stressing the importance of including these non-digestible fibers to our diet, particularly in the role it plays in reducing your risk for colonic cancers. Now, we've got uh, starch as the polymer for glucose. It's usually your main storage form of your carbs. And mainly your plants. Uh, You've got your amylose, your amylopectin, and the glycogen from your animal stores. Of course, you'll go into this in a lot more detail in your biochemistry, and so biochemistry will require you to know the structure, what separates it, what splits it, as well as uh, what will attack or or help to form these 1,4 linkages, etc. So just a quick recall of what the structures look like. You've got your amylose, your long chain with your alpha-1,4 bonds. You've got your amylopectin which is branched. You've got your smaller molecules, your maltose, your maltotriose, your glucose oligomers, and your uh, sample of the limit dextrin. But in terms of digestion and carbs, what we are concerned with is how these uh, large molecules are going to be broken down into monosaccharides or micromolecules so that we can absorb it. Now, you've got uh, slow uh, p- p- uh, molecules that are slow or usually resistant to digestion. We have to figure out how we're going to break them down. We'll talk about enzymes and the enzymatic action. You've got non-starch polysaccharides. You've got the dietary fiber, such as that which we get from fruits and vegetables. But when we talk about dietary fiber, we split it now into what's fibrous, so you've got like stuff from your lettuce, your cellulose, and you've got your pectins and gums. These are the ones that you get from the skins of the fruit that you should eat. Now, the beauty about the cellulose is that even though we're unable to digest it, digest it within the colon, you've got your colonic bacteria, and they can actually act on, on these cellulose particles, and degrade that fiber. And so if you look at a little summary in terms of carb digestion, you want to pay attention to what are the enzymes that are convert starch into your oligosaccharides and disaccharides. You talk about your amylase, whether it's from the saliva or the pancreas. Once you get into the small intestines, you think of the brush border enzymes, your sucrase, your lactase, your maltase. Once you've got your monosaccharides, how are these monosaccharides going to cross that apical membrane and get into your enterocyte? And so this is simply, in schematics, uh, the different actions of the enzymes or the digestive enzymes on each of these different nutrients. Now the age-old question, why did the monosaccharides cross the enterocyte? to get to the other side. Now, in this case, what we have is difference between the way glucose and galactose is going to be absorbed versus fructose. Now, earlier on, we talked about glucose utilizing facilitated diffusion. The only one that utilizes facilitated diffusion on the apical surface is your fructose. It's going to utilize your GLUK5. The secondary active transport is where we have sodium, being cu- uh, uh, glucose and galactose being coupled to sodium for transport across the apical membrane. Once it gets within the cytoplasm, then all of these use facilitated diffusion to get into your uh, vasculature. Now, a point of note in terms of clinical reference, you'll see questions pop up with this, If someone has an absent SGLT1, what will they present with? Of course, the glucose and galactose malabsorption. If you pour a very hyper-osmolar solution within your small intestines, you're going to pull a lot of water. You're going to have an osmotic type of diarrhea. Now, when someone has diarrhea, what we're worried about is dehydration. And so, of course, the easiest thing to do is to give them some ORS or oral rehydration solution. How many of you have had it before? How does it taste? Salty, not very pleasant. And the reason that it has that salty taste is for the same physiological principle. We need to emphasize the presence of that sodium so we can couple the nutrients with the sodium to facilitate absorption and push that water back into the vasculature. Now, let's look at proteins and protein digestion and absorption. You've got your proteins. 15% is usually from the pepsin in the stomach, but majority is from your pancreatic peptidases. And so when we think of your endopeptidases, think of elastase, think of chymotrypsin, think of trypsin. Now, these proteins are converted into oligopeptides and then acted upon by your exopeptidases, which are your carboxypeptidases. They're then converted into peptides and amino acids. And so protein digestion converts 60% into small intestines and 40% into amino acids. Now, this takes you a little bit further on how these proteins cross that apical membrane. So you've got amino acids being coupled with sodium. You've got brush border enzymes, or the peptidases, acting on these amino acids to facilitate and help it uh, move across into the cytoplasm. You've, You've small peptides being able to diffuse with the presence of hydrogen. And of course, you've got very small proteins being able to move across. However, these are known to trigger immune responses. Now, this one gives you a little bit more graphical representation, but because of the multitude of amino acids that you have, you have a multitude of amino acid transporters, and for physio, will not require you to know what those different transporters are with regards to specificity and those amino acids. What we need to understand is what the different types of molecules will use to move across that apical membrane. And so your first clinical correlate for the hour will talk about what the effect can affect, uh, uh, present with an amino acid deficiency or can affect the amino acid transport. And so two classical cases... Biochemistry again, you've got your Hartnup's disease and cysteine urea. Now, with cysteine urea, you're gonna go a lot much more in detail with it in biochem. It's an effect in the basic amino acid uptake, and this person presents with those kidney stones. Hartnup's disease, on the other hand, you're going to have more CNS symptoms. So the person is going to have pellagra, the person is going to have ataxia, the person is going to present with more neurological manifestations, particularly psychiatric abnormalities. And so at the end of your studying, everyone should be able to create a nice massive concept map. And your concept map should be able to say, hey, what are the different structures I've taken in Which compartment am I in? Particularly in this case, we're talking about the small intestines. What digestive enzymes has to act on it to break it down into your monosaccharides? What mechanism of transport is it going to use to get across the apical membrane? And how is it going to get then into your vasculature? And so this starts uh, starts to put you in that gear, but you need to continue to add on it and expand it even further. And so fat digestion and absorption, when we talk about fat digestion, we talk about triglycerides, your cholesterol esters, your phospholipids, the action of the lipases on it, the action of the cholesterol ester hydrolase, the action of the phospholipase A2, and how we're able to produce those monosaccharides and those fatty acids cholesterol and uh, the lysolecicin. Now, emulsification we touched on just a little bit yesterday, but today we'll highlight the importance of it because it plays an integral role with lipid absorption. In order for us to be able to take those lipids in, make good use of it, we have to be able to pull that large lipid, drop it apart, and emulsify it, and then favor Uh, digestive enzymes acted on it before we can absorb it. And so the process of emulsification doesn't happen until we get into the small intestines. It begins by preparing the food. We must first chew it, macerate it, then we'll titrate it even further once it gets into the stomach, and then we're going to talk about how the micelles are formed, and we'll talk about what uh, emulsion stabilizers must be present, Yesterday, we looked at the role of phospholipids as a component of bile. We looked at the presence of cholesterol as a component of bile and how well they form as emulsion stabilizers. And we talked about the micelles, including triglycerols as well, so that it can help with uh, forming that core of that micelle. And just so to make... There's no volume. Right, so what has happened is that this video helps to remind us that in reality, we've taken in lots of fat-soluble vitamins, but it's unable to cross that unstirred water layer. And so that means what we need to do is we need to micellize these vitamins in order to cross that unstirred water layer. Now, what's happening in bioengineering is that we are now generating products that can do this outside of the body. And so what they have done is that they have demonstrated the ability to create these phospholipids, create these bile salts, and so the red particle would be a lipid, your large lipid droplet, being pulled apart into separate pieces, and so you've got your uh, bile salts, bile acids surrounding it, helping to pull it apart and prepare it for the process of digestion. And yesterday, what we talked about, we talked about the presence of the hydrophilic side, the hydrophobic side, the amphiphatic nature of your bile acids to facilitate that micellar formation. And so we talk about the secretion of your various lipases, the role of the bile becomes important now. You've got that fat droplet being pulled apart and and, and formed into smaller droplets. You've got hydrolysis of your ester linkages. And of course now this lipophilic product is now made soluble because of the presence of these micelles. Now once you've got that micellar disc, we've zoomed in a little bit, we see the ability to cross that unstirred water layer and enter the, the microvilli or the apical membrane of the microvilli in that enterocyte. And so this, you'll go into much more details in your biochemistry. What happens once you've taken in the lipids, you talk about your VLDLs, your LDLs, your HDLs, your chylomicrons, and which uses what, who goes into your vasculature, versus who goes into your lacteals. Now, these fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, it has to depend on the presence of your bile salts in order to be mycelized for absorption. So they're going to appear in chylomicrons basically unaltered in, in by entire site metabolism. You're going to have vitamin A uh, and vitamin D. Small amounts are going to be esterified, but you're going to have uh, vitamin E and K being not. Now, if you're unable to form those micelles, I can't emphasize enough that you're not going to be able to pull that lipid across the in, into the enterocyte. And so the contents of your lumen is going to be very fatty. It's going to be lipid filled. You're going to have lots of oil. And so what this patient is going to come complaining of is that their stools are not. How many persons look back after they've gone? <laughs> exactly. So it is very alarming when you've flushed once, flushed twice, and you see a very oily, uh, meaty consistency of that stool. And so when you hear this catchphrase, steatorrhea, you think about fat malabsorption. It's the only time you get to talk about stool and like it. All right, so with regards to your water-soluble vitamins, we talk about eight Bs and one C, but particularly we like vitamin B12, yes? The predominant mechanism is usually by simple passive diffusion. Uh, the only exceptions that needs carriers, you've got your thiamine, your riboflavin, your cobalamin, your folate, your vitamin B, C, uh, vitamin C. Of course, the water-soluble vitamins aren't usually stored. You take in what you need, you pass out any excess, uh, except for B12, which usually plays a role in terms of uh, binding with intrinsic factor. So let's go through the process of vitamin B12. In the stomach, you've got your B12 being present. It forms a complex with your haptocorrin. Now, remember, your parietal cells are going to secrete your intrinsic factor. But it does not become active or play a role in this B12 absorption until you get into the small intestines. That vitamin B12 complex is acted upon by your peptidases to release the B12, where it now binds with the intrinsic factor to form a complex. That intrinsic factor factor B12 complex is the only way it's going to move across uh, uh, the enterocyte in the distal ileum to get into your vasculature. It then binds the transcobalamin and then it moves to the liver for storage. So your clinical correlate, you'll hear a lot about this, USMLE favorite, pernicious anemia, vitamin B12 deficiency. It can usually happen if somebody's had that bariatric surgery, resected part of the stomach, so you've got a gastric, eight, uh, reduced, uh, uh, parietal cells, so a gastrectomy. If this person has gastric atrophy, so anything affecting or reducing the amount of parietal cells they'll have, you've reduced the ability to secrete your intrinsic factor. This person will present with a macrocytic presentation, a kind of anemia, pernicious anemia, usually due to the B12 deficiency. And so this is just a summary slide of your digestive enzymes that act, uh, which organ it's going to be released from, what it's going to act on. Uh, You've got your pepsinogen from your stomach, your lipase in your stomach. In your pancreas, you've got your amylase acting on your carbs. You've got chymotrypsin and carboxypeptidase acting on your proteins. You've got your colipase and lipase acting on your lipids. And of course, your whole host of brushboard enzymes acting on your carbs, acting on your proteins as well. And so this absorption profile links back to the table that we had earlier. What is absorbed and where? Now, your glucose absorption starts very early, as early as your duodenum. And so it's most of the glucose that you would have taken in in your meal would have been completely absorbed by the time you get to the early part of the ileum. Protein, on the other hand, it starts its absorption Uh, later on in duodenum, continues throughout the jejunum, but all the way through for the ileum. And the lipids, we have the digestion uh, and absorption occurring from early or late in the duodenum, all the way maximally in jejunum, as well as the ileum. One, let's see how you did. All right, nice, excellent. Right, so all of these we would have talked about, and remember when you're going back over your mechanisms, be sure to relate back okay, which is the facilitated diffusion, which one is active transport, etc. Now, with regards to the uh, uh, absorptive surface area. We just spoke at length about the absorption, but then let's look at the secretory aspect of this epithelium. Most of the absorption occurs at the tips, whether it's the tips of the villi, tips of the microvilli, but once we get into the crypt, then most of the secretions that we mentioned earlier on are going to occur. And so when we look at absorption, think of sodium. Sodium being coupled to the nutrients, sodium being exchanged for hydrogen. Sodium coming in with chloride, and even chloride playing a role with the exchanger of bicarb. But sodium is usually the main or the integral ion that plays a role in absorption of your nutrients. Now, uh, in the small intestines, you've got your sodium being taken up by enterocytes, you've got water following this passively by osmosis. In your upper GI tract, You want to talk about the important role of your sodium nutrient transporters. And in the ileum, you want to look at the main driving uh, process is usually that uh, parallel operation. One, you've got your sodium and your hydrogen exchanger, and particularly your chloride and your hydrogen exchanger in the ileum. Now, this would have come earlier It's just a summary of the different types of exchangers, the transporters and the pumps, and the ion channels that are present. Remember, once you know what's on the apical and the basolateral surface, it's easy to work out the principles of that exchange. And so why is this fluid secretion so necessary? Because you have to be able to break these macromolecules into micromolecules. You have to favor lubrication. You have to help the motility. And so these secretions is going to help to move or clear or or... or, or, or Pass or favor the absorption of these nutrients and help to uh, favor absorption. Now, if you've not taken in enough sodium, that secretion is going to help to provide a source of sodium to help to facilitate that absorption as well. And now, if you've eaten something that perhaps you shouldn't have eaten that has been there a little bit too long and contains a lot of irritating factors, that secretion is help to wash out that irritant and get rid of it as well. And so when we look at secretion from the crypts, we look at what's happening and how that chloride is going to get to that apical surface. Now, the sodium-potassium pump on the basolateral membrane provides the energy needed for the triple co-transporter, and so chloride is brought intracellularly. But the two main mechanisms by which chloride can get or be exuded into the lumen. We see CFTR here uh, uh, acting with the increased intracellular cyclic AMP. And then you've got your calcium-regulated chloride channel once you've increased your intracellular calcium. And so this just basically explains what we talked about in the slide before. So diarrhea, my favorite. Once you've got an increased volume of stool, whether it's with frequency, whether it's in terms of mass, in terms of uh, 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 volume or, or frequency, then we talk about diarrhea. Yes? Now, the two main principles that we look at, there are other causes, but the two main ones we look at is the type of diarrhea that this person has. Is it a secretory type of diarrhea or is it an osmotic type of diarrhea? Now, most of the toxins, especially when we talked about earlier, V. cholera, E. coli, these cause secretory-type diarrheas, toxins, hormones, secretory-type diarrheas. Now, the changes in the uh, osmolarity of whatever gets into your small intestines, if you've got a hyperosmolar content within that small intestine, then it's going to pull water, and you talk about osmotic types of diarrhea. So, if I've got any sort of malabsorption, if I've got uh, ingested uh, poor, uh, uh, I've poorly ingested and absorbed substrates, I'm going to have uh, osmotic type of diarrhea. And so, in this slide, we do a summary of the different types of causes of security type diarrhea. Our earlier question alluded to the role of cholera and the enterotoxin and how it increases intracellular cyclic AMP. You've got E. coli acting in this manner as well. C. difficile, uh, the clostridium, this is going to increase my intracellular calcium, and it's going to exude more chloride into the lumen. Acetylcholine, serotonin, and bradykinin also act to increase your intracellular calcium. And VIP, histamine, and prostaglandins increase your cyclic AMP. And so the second set of key concepts we looked at, we looked at the different nutrients and how these nutrients are converted into smaller particles, how these nutrients are taken into the enterocytes, and how they are used. All right, so based on the buzz, let's see how you did. All right, so in this case, aha, I know. All right, so in this case, the correct answer would be A, because I've increased the water content of my feces. What's causing the increase in the water content? All of the different products. I'm getting a hyperosmolar uh, pulling of, 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 of uh, water because I'm unable to absorb most of my nutrients because I've removed a lot of the absorptive surface area. But notice this is an increase in concentration of bile acid in the enterohepatic circulation. How does the bile get back into the enterohepatic circulation? It has to be reabsorbed in the terminal ileum. So if I've removed my terminal ileum, then it cannot be Get, it cannot get back into the entire hepatic circulation, so this would be a decrease rather than an increase. Right? All right. And of course, this last differential, the amino acids are absorbed continuously, so you still have your duodenum and you still have your jejunum available. This one usually gets students. I don't know why, but usually do. All right. Let's see what you did. All right. So, this one is the last one for the morning. Make sure you click in. Let's see how you did. Ah, yeah. All right, so excellent, yes. Could be a little higher, but yeah, we'll work with this, right? Of course, when we talk about the presence of the uh, decrease in your chymotrypsin, and we talk about uh, the lack of the enterokinase, uh, the intestinal border, uh, brush border enzyme helping to form or create these active ones. All right, so what we'll wrap up the hour with is two smaller minerals. You've got your iron and your calcium. Um, they're usually uh, absorbed within the small intestines, the upper part of the small intestines. Now, when we talk about calcium and calcium uptake, is usually uh, regulated by vitamin, vitamin D. And so you've got uh, vitamin D acting on the uptake of calcium across the apical membrane. Uh, Vitamin D helping to form that cal-binding calcium complex. Uh, Once it's in the cytoplasm, then you have the energy, uh, calcium being coupled to sodium to move across the basolateral membrane, and of course calcium in the presence of calcium, ATPase helping to favor that as well. Now you've got that passive movement along the electrochemical gradient, however once it gets to the basolateral membrane, it's now... Actively extruded. Now, why must I have this cal binding calcium complex in the cytoplasm? Exactly, yes. Right. So, we do not want to have that increased intracellular calcium because we just talked about it favoring the exuding or extrusion of chlorine into the lumen. I'm going to have a secretory type of diarrhea. Excellent. Now, the dietary iron, of course, depending on the state the iron is in, whether it's ferric, Ferrous it'll utilize different forms of transport. Yes? But what we'll focus on is that once you've got the apoferritin and the basolateral uh, membrane, you've got the iron needing the uh, ferroporton, utilizing a ferropor- ferroporton to actually get into the plasma before it can actually be stored within the liver. You'll see lots of mention of a uh, term hepcidin. Hepcidin will inhibit. Uh, this ferroportin action and prevent or increase the accumulation of iron within that enterocyte. Right, And so your clinical correlator to help to bring this together. You've got hemochromatosis, uh, excessive absorption of iron, uh, usually associated with iron overload. We do not want excess iron within the uh, enterocytes. It's toxic. Uh, If it's in the liver, it can cause tissue damage. If it's in tissues, then it also causes tissue damage within those tissues. And, of course, the treatment for this person, because of that excessive iron, you have to bleed this patient intermittently. Now, the favorite one or the more practical one that you see is that iron deficiency anemia. You've seen this in uh, menstruating women. You see this in persons whose dietary uh, component of iron is reduced. And this person usually presents with tiredness and fatigue. And so the treatment is any sort of iron supplementation. Be sure to give your iron supplementation with vitamin C. You'll talk about why you do this in biochemistry, or this person will present with very dark-colored stool or black-colored stool. All right. So take a break, and then we come back for your IMCQs.